Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a founder that uh, definitely we're going to be hearing a bunch of really incredible adrenaline-fueled stories on building, financing, uh, scaling a company, running out of cash, shutting down the business, opening back the business. I mean, it's going to be pretty, you know, a lot of fun. So uh, without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Arkady Sosinov. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So born in, in St. Petersburg, and I know that the, the family also originally from the Ukraine, and I know it was not easy, um, the upbringing and growing up, but uh, we'd love to hear, you know, how was life growing up? Uh, sure. Thank you. So a little bit about my background and past. Yes, I was born in St. Petersburg in the Soviet Union. Um, and it was an interesting story about how I got there because my family is not originally from St. Petersburg. We're from a little town in the Ukraine called Chernigov. This little town, um, is well known for being the, the largest major town outside of Chernobyl, the, the power plant that exploded on April 26, 1986. We were about, uh, 50 kilometers outside of the, the reactor that exploded. And unfortunately, my mother was seven months pregnant with me. Um, it was obviously a very traumatic time for my family and, and for her particularly. And once, once they got the chance to escape, they did right after about two weeks, the Soviet union allowed folks to leave the area. You know, the world had found out about this explosion and how deadly and dangerous it was. And so the Soviet union could no longer contain that information, could no longer hide it. So people started leaving. And my family went to St. Petersburg to stay with relatives. Um, it's there that I was born. Um, but as you probably know, back in those days, there was no real mobility of, of there's no movement, right? You couldn't really move easily throughout the country. So within about two months, we went back to the Ukraine, back to Chernigov and lived next to the remnants of that power plant for the next five years until 1991. Um, it's obviously affected who I am today. Um, you know, I, my family lived through arguably the worst energy disaster, um, of all time. And that's really affected the way we talk about energy, the way we view energy. And I knew that once I grew up and, 
uh, became an entrepreneur, I wanted to do something to affect that. Um, but yeah, it wasn't easy. In then in 1991, um, the Soviet Union collapsed, right? In August of 1991, right before the collapse, my family immigrated out as religious refugees and, and landed in the land of opportunities, New York City. Um, How old were you at that point? I was five years old. I was five. Wow. Um, please, please continue. Yeah. yeah. I was five years old with a 16-year-old sister with a, two parents and a grandmother. And we all landed in New York City and lived in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. Um, it's a typical immigrant story, right? Where we lived in New York for a couple of years. We, they, we worked as hard as possible. We focused on education. We focused on each other. And eventually, uh, we moved to Boston, which is where my family still is and w where I consider home. Um, and over time, we, we, we did what most immigrants do, which is we worked hard, right? We, we bettered ourselves. And now fast forward to today, we're almost, it's been almost 30 years. Next year, in 2021, it'll be 30 years since we immigrated. Um, but the family has been fairly successful, right? We have my sister who got a great education, ended up getting her PhD from Yale. Um, myself, you know, I got my MBA from Berkeley and, and, you know, we're all doing fairly well. So I think it's a really, really kind of symbolic and, and great story about the American dream and how possible that is and, and how a lot of immigrants in this country experienced it and, and, and really lived it. That's amazing. And what would you say, because obviously when, when you experienced this, and even though you were five or six years old, I mean, maybe you have some memories, you know, from those uh, early years being in New York and also seeing your parents too, because they were dealing with a huge amount of uncertainty, going to a new place and, you know, starting a new life. I'm sure that this also shaped you and your mindset as an entrepreneur too, and, and really being able as well to deal with uncertainty. Would you say that's the case? Oh, absolutely. I think the, the, biggest thing an entrepreneur has to have is is you know risk seeking behavior right for i speak to a lot of young entrepreneurs around the bay area and one question i always get is how do i make that leap how do i choose to quit my job my my well paying secure job and leave all of the comforts behind and start this thing where i have no idea if it'll work out i have no idea if i'm going to raise funding. I know I'm not going to be able to pay myself. How do I, how do I take that leap? And I think being an immigrant coming to this country and having to leave everything behind, having to leave family jobs, you know, the, you couldn't, you couldn't even bring clothes and jewelry with you at that point. And being able to do that and seeing that my parents were willing to do that to better their lives and to better the lives of their children you know, makes me more willing to, to do that as an entrepreneur. So it's, that's definitely shaped who I am today. That's amazing. And obviously, I mean, you've, you've been working since you're 14. I mean, even carrying golf bags. So uh, talking <laughs> about like that mindset and of working hard and making things happen. So I'm sure that that also gave you the, the drive too, no? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, it was interesting. My, my, my parents both worked extremely hard when we first moved, and they still do today. And seeing that work ethic, um, you know, really affected who I was. As soon as I could 
have a job and, and earn some money for the family. I, I did. At about 14 years old is when I started working. Um, they were simple jobs at that point, right? I think my first job was carrying golf bags at a, at a country club outside of Boston. Um, I would get driven to the country club by my mom and get there at 4.35 in the morning, carry bags for you know eight, nine hours, and then come home and give all the money to my family, right? That was that was how it started out. But but at, since that point, since 14 years old, I've never stopped working. I've never not had a job. And, and you know, no one on this podcast is listening to this should feel sorry for me. I was happy that I did that, right? I enjoyed working. I enjoyed providing for my family what little I could. And um, I think it's a work ethic that, again, you know, I hate to harp on this point, but that a lot of immigrants have in this country. And I think it's an important one to have. A hundred percent. And I fully, fully agree with that, Arcadia. So, so obviously after, you know, the, so you went to school uh, and then if we fast forward a little bit, so you started getting into the, into the trading and, and quant trading and things like that. And this mm. was actually the segue to starting your own business. So, so tell us about being in the space and then also coming up with the idea of a free wire. Right. Right. So, you know, I started to get more, um, deeper into my profession a little bit after I graduated college. I, I started working for a subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon, and I was developing accounting and trading software. And um, eventually, I, and we were developing that software for the banking and the hedge fund industry. And eventually, I, I, I came across a hedge fund based in Boston that was implementing that system. And I got a job there doing some of the implementation work. Um, after the implementation was done, that was pretty quick. I moved over to more of the quantitative side of that, of the hedge fund world. And, and that was really around trying to figure out how the world works and modeling that programmatically, pumping data through those models and trying to make investment decisions based on those models. Um, and I did that for a, a number of years. It was incredible. I started to understand how markets worked. I started to theorize you know, how, um, you know, how you generate wealth, generate return. And I started to looking at really interesting subsectors of various markets. For example, I started looking at oil and gas in emerging markets, right? Understanding how oil and gas companies in Russia and Brazil were affected by regulatory pressures and, and how that attributed to returns. You know, I started looking at the utility sectors and trying to figure out how utilities could be upended by new competitors who come out are electric vehicles or solar is is wind generation going to affect utilities in a negative or positive way and, and if so how so i started really working through through those angles eventually that company um they moved me out to um to berkeley california right outside of the san francisco bay area um and while there, I continued to, to do that work, but I also decided to go to school part-time. So I applied for and got into um, UC Berkeley's part-time MBA program. And for a period of time, I was going to school part-time, working full-time for this hedge fund, and I had founded Freewire, the company um, that we're going to be talking about shortly today. And I was doing all three at the same time, right? Um, at the same time, I was trying to maintain a social life and and relationships and friends. Um, so it was, it was definitely a very stressful, uh, very hectic time in my life in my late twenties. Um, 
but you know, I, looking back, I enjoyed every single second of it. So then, how were you able to really balance this? I mean, obviously, you have this same uh, fantastic job. You also have your masters going on. So why do you complicate yeah. your life with one more thing? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's um, part of the immigrant mentality of never being satisfied with what you have. And um, that's definitely a big part of my life. I always want something more. I always want to do the hardest possible thing. And that's that's kind of a revolving joke in my life amongst my friends and my family that, you know, if it's easy, I won't do it. If it's hard, then um, I'm going to convince myself that I have to do it. So, so that's, I needed to, right? I needed to go through that period of my life. I needed to be intellectually curious. Um, you know, and going back to school really triggered some of that intellectual curiosity and really triggered some of those muscles that, that you use that, you know, after you graduate, you're undergraduate, right? And you leave school and you go to work, things can get a little repetitive sometimes, right? And I think going back to school really triggered something for me and allowed me to flex my muscles a little bit. My, uh, and, uh, you know, I wanted to use them to the full six of possible. So I, I decided to do all three of these things. Juggling everything was hard. I think my social life definitely deteriorated at that point. Um, my, I, had a, I was in a relationship and, and I think that the person I was with, she was very supportive. Right. And I think that's one thing an entrepreneur needs really is someone by their side who's supportive uh, about, you know, the difficulty of doing of, of being an entrepreneur and, and doing all these things at once. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a tough position to be in, but I, but I think I handled it pretty well. So then at what point do you decide, OK, uh, now it's time to go at it with free wire and, and really make it happen? Yeah, I think there were two things that really led me to that point. One is the idea of FreeWire actually came from a class project at Berkeley. Um, first of all, I'm very lucky to have met the people that I've met and and been around the circles that I was. And, and Berkeley is a great place to do that, right? You have professors who are venture capital investors or executives of public companies. And I was lucky in the fact that I took this idea of FreeWire, and I'll describe it shortly, but I took this idea, I, I put it through a class um, project. They're basically a little, a tiny little version of an accelerator or an incubator. And at the end of that, that 10 weeks that, of that class, the professor, a gentleman named Steve Blank, who's a pretty well-known angel investor, um, stood up and said, yeah, that's amazing. How would you like $50,000 to start this company? And I think that was a big trigger point for me. That was me knowing, oh my God, that, that this is possible that, you know, I've come up with an idea. Someone's willing to take the risk and back me on this idea. And I'm going to make sure that I do right by that money and by that person. And this is my ability to, to, to do what I want to do. Right. The other trigger point for me was, um, going back to the chairman of the hedge fund that I worked for, uh, a, a brilliant gentleman who is kind of enthralled in the clean tech world. Um, and he was one of the best mentors that I've ever had. He, when I told him this idea and then I had this opportunity to go and leave the company and start something. And I had a little bit of seed funding that, that I had access to, you know, he really pushed me to do so. Um, and in fact, when I left the hedge funds, he, he became my largest angel investor and invested in the company as well. 
So again, I know that I've, I'm lucky because I've surrounded myself with, with people who are um, capable of doing that and, and people who can support me in that, in that, uh, you know, way. But it, it's also a little bit of creating your own luck, right? It's also a little bit of um, kind of being passionate about something and finding people around you that can help you and push you. So I think that's when I decided to take the leap and quit that job at the hedge fund, um, start FreeWire and go at it full time was, was when I knew I could access a little bit of capital. Um, it certainly wasn't enough capital, you know, I'll definitely raise a lot more over time, but it was uh, a proof point for me. Absolutely. So what ended up being the business model of FreeWire for the people that are listening to get it? Sure. So here at FreeWire, we develop technology to enable ultra-fast charging of electric vehicles. So imagine you, Alejandro, that you have a, a Tesla or an, an electric Audi, and you pull up into a, a, a shopping mall. You want to be able to charge a car in 15 to 20 minutes, right? You want to do that quickly and you want to get on your way. That To enable that, it takes a lot of infrastructure, it takes a lot of technology, it takes a lot of capital. And so that's why we don't see more prevalent um, ultra-fast charging around the country and around the world is because of the amount of infrastructure necessary to do that is exorbitant. Um, and so we develop technology that can you can deploy charging quickly. It's ultra-fast, so you can start charging 15 to 20 minutes. But it's a fraction of the cost compared to traditional ultra-fast charging infrastructure, and it um, it doesn't have a negative impact on the grid. Whereas traditional chargers, every time you plug in, you see a large spike that happens on the grid because you're consuming so much power. We flatten that spike out so that the utility sees a nice, flat, steady consumption curve. And the way you would interact with our our chargers, Alejandro, is, is, you know, you'd go into a parking lot, you'd see a, a large charger, it says FreeWire Boost Charger on it, you plug into it, you have a nice big screen, you, you'd swipe your credit card, you get ultra-fast charging, um, and, 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 you know, so you, you wouldn't know what kind of technology is in there, but, but what I can tell you is that it's, it's, it's compelling. Very nice. And they, I know that, obviously, Every company starts with putting together a, a band, putting together a, a founding mm. team. And I understand that in your case, you know, perhaps the, the, the sound wasn't coming as, as nicely as it should have been, you know, from the beginning. And I know that there were some, some uh, hiccups there. So, there were so hiccups. tell us about, about the hiccups. There were hiccups, yeah. And, and I think this is, uh, this is a story for every founder, right? Um, what... Th one thing I want to say is that I think one big mistake that I made in, in my founding team was I recruited people from my MBA program. That's a bit, you do not want to recruit founders who are like you. Okay. So to me, it was myself and, and two other MBA students. And that's just not a healthy mix. You know, if you're starting a technology company, you want maybe a business person, you want a technology person, you might even want a lawyer on your team or a finance professional, right? But having three MBAs start a company, it, that's already um, too many cooks in the kitchen, right? So I think that was 
something you want to watch out for and make sure that when you form that initial team, that you have a diverse set of backgrounds, a diverse set of skills um, to found that team. I made that mistake. Um, what happened next was that there was another um, problem with risk appetite. I was risk seeking, as we talked about already, right? I was willing to quit my job. I was willing to go full time. I was willing to take no salary. I had no mortgage. I had no house. I had no kids, right? I had, I could take that leap knowing that if I failed, it would affect me, my, myself, myself only. The folks that I started the company with, they had wives and children and mortgages and families to take care of, right? And so there was not as risk seeking. So that became a problem where I did go full time. I put, you know, I left everything behind to do this. Whereas the other two co-founders kept their full-time jobs, kept a salary, could only work on the weekends and evenings, could not put in the hours that I put in, but were still treated as equal founders. And that causes frustration over time, right? That causes um, a, you know, you start to think about, are, are we really allocating equity the right way? Are you really a co-founder at this point? I need you to put more effort in. I need you to take these risks that I'm taking. And honestly, I felt alone. I felt lonely in this process. You know, during the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day, these folks were stuck in a corporate job. And I was, you know, sweating away at this company, not getting paid. And I needed someone to share that experience with, and I didn't have that. And so that caused a lot of frustration. And after about a year, um, that founding team broke up, right? And I was the only one left. The other two, um, you know, continued on with their corporate jobs. And um, then there was, you know, a disagreement with how to allocate equity once that split happened, right? Even though we had contracted in our you know founders agreements how that equity should switch should happen there was still disagreement certain parties wanted more than was agreed upon and we have to turn to lawyers and so imagine you being in a small little startup barely scraping by not even paying yourself and now you have to spend time with lawyers and pay lawyers to figure out how to split this equity of a company that may be worth nothing frankly speaking okay and that was really frustrating, caused a lot of real heartache and pain on my side. And, and I'll be honest, even to this day, when I still think about that story, and to me telling you this story now, it, it, it causes some, some heartache, right? It, it really causes some, brings up some really nasty memories and some stress that um, I never want to deal with again. No, I hear you. And look, when I speak with founders, I always tell them that, you know, you really need to have a cliff. You know, and, and, and at least, you know, a year or two years now, I, I, I'm seeing cliffs, you know, between founders so that if one leaves, you know, they, they leave all the equity on the books so that they can allocate it to, to new people coming in. Otherwise, there are the free riders. And that's that's really tough. Must have a cliff. I completely agree with you. I had a cliff. In, in our case, though, based on the way the original founder, founders documents were drafted, there was some flexibility there. So I would also recommend that you know, as founders, if you really are allocating equity, first of all, don't just use documents you find online, you know, review it with a lawyer. They, some, a lot of lawyers in the Bay area will actually do it for free because they want your business in the long run. I also would recommend adding milestones, not just a milestone of a, of a date, a cliff, 
I would actually add milestones that that say something like if this person doesn't go full time within X number of months, right, then the amount of equity they get is cut in half, let's say, right, as an example. Or if this person is brought in because they're a business development professional, they have to bring in at least, let's say, a million dollars worth of uh, revenue or $10 million worth of pipeline within X number of months, or else they that that cliff isn't triggered. I would I would put hard milestones in there. And those milestones can be adjusted over time as the business develops, but you know, it it better aligns incentives. And that's what I would do for my next company going forward. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Fantastic insights there, uh Arcady. So so obviously for this company you've raised quite a bit of money. How much have you guys raised to date? Um about forty five million dollars. Got it. And I know yeah. that in many instances, almost you've run out of cash. So maybe like mm. there's like one of those stories. Uh, well, maybe maybe there's this story about the call that you received right before Christmas. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, you could have chosen a dozen different stories where we ran out of cash. Um, but <laughs> but the, this one, listen, first of all, nothing to be embarrassed about. Every startup founder runs out of cash. Yeah. You always have to skip payroll. You may have to use some of your own money to fund payroll for for key employees, which I did, by the way. It, it happens. It is happens. And any, by the way, a little secret in Silicon Valley: any startup that tells you that they have more than nine to twelve months of runway is probably lying to you. Uh, so <laughs> the <laughs> the um, yeah, that had this one story where we were raising our Series A round, and we we got a lead investor. Um, a term sheet, we're negotiating documents, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we were in that process. We were also running out of money at this time. You know, we were basically, you know, we were just scraping by. The executive team wasn't taking any salary. Um, you know, we were asking some employees to furlough, to forgo salaries. It, I mean, we were scraping by, but to the public eye, we seemed like we were a growing healthy company because sometimes you need to show that, right? Sometimes you need to have that facade we were this was the end of the year this was you know the right before christmas uh, and we were finalizing the definitive agreements right the transaction documents for the series a and we expected to get funded about the first couple weeks of january right we expected the wire the money in the bank and that would have been fine we would have only skipped a few salaries and we would have paid ourselves back and everything was going to be fine december 24th the day before christmas i get a phone call and the phone call is one you don't want to hear. It's that there's been a change of heart and that the this was a corporate venture capital strategic investor said we're backing out. Um, and, you know, they had their reasons, but they didn't matter what the reasons were. All I thought about in that moment was, oh, my God, you know, we're shutting down. There's nothing left here. Uh, we cannot go any longer. And we don't have a backup plan. And it was really disheartening. So I talked to my closest executives on, on the management team about it. We, we said, okay, you know, this happened. We're not going to solve it between now and New Year's. So let's go enjoy you know, time with our families and our friends. We did. We didn't tell anyone else in the company. But then you know, I think on January 2nd, we came back together and said, it's time to shut down. Right? Let's end this now because there's nothing left. And if we effectively shut the company down. For the next two, three months, we... Nobody got paid. There was very little operation. Some employees continued working though, because they were so motivated and they think they thought that things would come back. They had more hope than I did even at that point. Which can you imagine how that made me feel? 
can you imagine how it made me feel that they had put their trust in me, right? That they had left other jobs to come work for me and I had failed them. And they were continuing to work, even though I told them that I don't see any hope of getting out of this. It, you know, it, it changed me, I think, as a person and as a, as a manager and as an entrepreneur in that moment. The great part of the story is that within about three months, um, that strategic investor came back around. We, I did everything in my power. My management team did everything in their power to, to convince them otherwise. And they ended up investing and leading that round. And um, that doesn't mean that was the last time we ran out of money. No, it wasn't. We ran out of money several more times. Uh, but, <laughs> right. but I think that that point was the one where it, it looked the darkest, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure yeah. that during those moments too, Arcadia is... When you, it's a, it's a real mental exercise too, no? Because obviously you start questioning yourself, you start asking, you know, the what ifs, what if there, what if there. So where do you find the strength to keep to keep moving? I think part of it is social pressure, really. You know, it's you have to be in an environment where this is okay. Um, I remember a story one of my investors told me um, out of Japan. He's Japanese. He founded a company. They were successful. And eventually, over time, their business was kind of eaten by, by lower-cost Chinese companies, right? Chinese startups, Chinese manufacturers, which is you know, kind of typical, commonplace in the Japanese market. But the company wound down, and he was considered a failure by, by his friends, by his colleagues, and kind of shunned. Right, so they were. They thought, well, we can't spend time with this person anymore because their company has shut down. They failed. They've, they've, you know, people lost their jobs. You know, that's just not not how we do things here in the Bay Area. Everyone has a failure story. I'm in various CEO groups where we meet for coffee or for you know for breakfast every once in a while. Guess what? When we're in those meetings and those groups, we don't talk about our successes. No one's bragging. We're basically crying on each other's shoulders, telling each other how this investor has pulled term sheets or, or these employees are, are suing because of that, or, you know, this competitor is eating our lunch. We're, we're, we're talking about the failures to each other because there are a lot and no one's embarrassed about it. We're all willing to talk about them because those are how you learn. So I think being an environment like the Bay area, this is what really makes it different around here is that it's not embarrassing to, to have issues or problems or, or fail, or do something wrong. It's a, it, you, you, as long as you can grow from it, that's what's important. That's what people see. And that really distinguishes you know, a lot of the, the culture, the professional culture that I saw in, in Boston and in New York when I was out there. And, and granted, I was spending a lot of time in those circles, in the financial circles, right? So which is different than the entrepreneurial circles. But, um, but what I can tell you that the environment here in the Bay Area is just different. And it, it it, it allows for you to trial and experiment and fail and then learn from those failures and come back from them. So I think that was really, really helpful. The other, yeah, I mean, and the other piece is that you, you've heard so many of these stories where people have failed and come right back out of that ditch, right? The trough of disillusionment, some may call it, uh, or the trough of despair. You know, everyone has to have that dark moment. If a company has not had that dark moment, again, that entrepreneur is lying to you. They've all had it. <laughs> and 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 what really separates the the, the multi you know the multi time entrepreneurs, the repeat entrepreneurs, are ones that were able to go through that trough 
stick to it, work hard and get out of it. And if you can get out of it, then, then, you know, that's a sign of a good entrepreneur and investors look for that. They really do. A hundred percent because the investors at the end of the day, they don't want to finance the education. They want to finance someone that is going to put the money into the execution. So I, I can get that Arcadia. So I guess your space as a whole, where do you think it's heading? Yeah. So I'm in, in the electric mobility space, right? Electric vehicles, autonomous transportation, electric cargo trucks. And, and um, it, it, I'm so bullish on it right now. I am so bullish. You know, every electric vehicles are really taking hold. You know, every major automotive OEM has an electric vehicle on the market and they're good. Right? They're no longer the toys that have an 80-mile range. Now these are long-range vehicles, comfortable, fast, attractive. They've certain, these vehicles have sex appeal, like the Tesla Model S and the Model 3. And so I think that we're really we're undergoing, in my opinion, one of the largest industrial revolutions of our generation. And that's the shift from combustion motors to electric mobility. And that's such a major shift. I mean, you're affecting not only the automotive OEMs, you're affecting the utilities, you're affecting retail. I mean, imagine this. Right now, to fuel up your vehicle, if you're driving, a, let's say, a Mercedes or a BMW, you have to go to a gas station, right? And you have to spend some time there. Now imagine if, there, if any mall could have its own version of a gas station. They have electric vehicle chargers in front now instead of going to a gas station you're spending that time going to the starbucks or to the whole foods and so retail is going to shift dramatically through this transformation and as autonomous vehicles start to take hold you're also starting to change cities right you're starting to change where people live because previously you didn't want to have a two-hour commute right but now you can live in connecticut and work in new york city and have your autonomous vehicle drive you there and that's convenient and comfortable and you're working while while that car is driving you there so now you're willing to go further and further out of cities out of city centers and live in the more of the kind of the suburban areas and so you're changing home ownership models you're changing commuting you're changing the utility grid you're changing automotive oems and all of these things kind of have to work in unison so i'm super bullish about where it's going you know we've had this pandemic now that we're living through and a lot of industries are upended. One thing that I've noticed though is demand for for electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging has not decreased. It really has not. If anything, there's a renewed focus on health. And as part of health, environment is a huge, huge issue there. And companies are spending billions of dollars to to affect it, right? Amazon just launched their billion dollar climate initiative fund. One billion dollars towards and a lot of that is going to go towards electric mobility right we've already heard about amazon's massive investment in rivian their move to electric delivery fleets right this is all in, in that guise of movement towards better health better environment and i you know i'm s- super happy to be in the space and, I, and i'm super bullish for it very nice very nice so i guess i guess for the for the folks that are listening you know and that uh, you know, this is a question that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show. I mean, it's incredible mm-hmm. now the experience that you've had with FreeWire and, you know, the ups and downs, the successes, the failures, 
you know, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with that younger Arcady, you know, that is saying mm-hmm. still in, in Berkeley and and working, you know, at the quant trading uh, GMO um, uh, company, I mean, what what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self, you know, knowing what you know now and, and why? You know, if, if you were to launch another business or or the first business and you were able to have that, that chat with your younger self. Hmm. Well, I, I mentioned something earlier, which is that find a founding team with a diverse skill set, diverse backgrounds. That's that's clear, right? Um, I could go back and tell myself, hey, it's going to be a lot harder than you expect, right? It's not going to be the three to five years that you'd expect. It's going to be six to ten years. But, you know, I think entrepreneurs have to have a little bit of overconfidence, right? You have to believe some of your own bullshit, right? If if I knew that this was going to be six to ten years, would I have still done it? I don't know. But I was exuberant. I thought it was going to be three to five years. I thought it was going to take, you know, $20 million, let's say, not the 45 or so that I've raised now. And and I think that's what makes a really good entrepreneur because they don't know how hard it's going to be. And they hear a lot of people around them say, no, it's going to be hard. It's going to take you this much, et cetera. And they're just not willing to believe it. And so they dive right into it and they put all of their effort in. So, I, you know, I, I think... You know, some people might think, oh, go back and tell yourself like all the the the, the trouble you're going to have and all the pain points you're going to and roadblocks you're going to encounter. In fact, I, I wouldn't, right? I wouldn't tell myself that because I want to still have as much, I, I want that younger Arcady to have had as much enthusiasm as I did. But diverse skill set in the founding team, I would... Um, caution earlier, Katie, about which investors you bring on in the earlier stages. Um, I would advise him to bring on more financial venture capital in the earlier stages, not strategic. Wait a little bit longer to bring in strategic venture capital. I brought a strategic venture capital on my A round. I probably should have only done financial VCs and then brought strategics in on my B round. Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's the advice. Very profound, very profound for sure, yeah. Katie. So, um, so I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, I mean, I love to talk to people. So my email is easy. It's my first name, Arcady, A R C A D Y, at freewiretech.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, send me a message. I respond to them. Um, so happy, happy to communicate, happy to talk to entrepreneurs, happy to talk to anybody that's in the electric mobility space and wants to learn more. And um, yeah, so reach out. Amazing. Well, Katie, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.